Why that is healthy? Why is that important? The podcast is called Why is that important? Hey there, and welcome to Why Is That Important, where regular people come for interesting ideas and perhaps a little debate. I'm your host, Joe Wanger, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Martin. Hey, guys. And uh, each week we have the privilege of interviewing someone who does something they feel is important enough to talk about, and we take some time to discuss it and maybe even disagree on it. So, Andrew, how are you doing today? Well, uh, not too bad. It was, it's been a hot two days, um, so... Thankfully, my air conditioner works fine, so I don't have any complaints inside, but I am trying to grow some new grass, and uh, they were complaining. The grass was complaining? Yeah, it was getting kind of brown on the edges, <laughs> and I had to water it. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's out there going, feed me. All right, cool. Um, yeah, dude, working, you know what we talked about last week? Like, working outside... When it gets hot like this, it's amazing just how oppressive heat is when you work in the city and you're like around blacktop almost entirely the whole day. Ugh. But do not envy yeah. you. I don't envy me either. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, today we are joined by Dave Burrell. Uh, Dave is recently married, depending on your perspective of when you've gotten married, but he said he's got his anniversary coming up here in a few days. Um, the three of us actually went to high school together, and we were talking earlier. We were all in not the same specific Latin class, but we all had the same Latin teacher at different times and had to take that class. Um, so shout out to uh, Mrs. Campbell there. And um, so Dave works for Siemens, and he, I'm trying to think how to, he does cool things with technology. <laughs> that's, the, that's the simple way of saying it. So um, yeah. And so, yeah, you know, I like to keep things real. <laughs> the, Andrew, and, Andrew and Dave were talking earlier and I could kind of follow along, but they were saying things like PLCs and all this other stuff. And I, I, it started reaching the point of like, oh yeah, okay, that's something that I don't know about, but uh, part of his job, uh, big, absolutely, probably almost exclusively part of his job is working with automation, and so uh, he's here today to talk to us about automation. So before we get to that, so Dave, how has your day been? Um, day's been pretty well. Uh, I was uh, down in Richmond this morning, and now I'm sitting in Wilmington, Delaware, in a hotel room. So it's uh, it's, it's been exciting. And is most of your work, I, mean, I know that you've traveled into other countries and stuff, but like, is most of your work actually stateside or do you, does it vary pretty much? So the role that I'm in now is all stateside. Um, the only thing I go outside of the country for is um, specific training. Um, Siemens being a German-based company, I, uh, I get to go to Germany on occasion. So I'll be over there here towards the end of June. Um, so they can teach me more things about how to uh, network and connect all of our automation systems together. Hmm. That's cool. That's very cool. So um, when it comes to this, I mean, obviously you went and you got your degree and then you said you got your master's in business and stuff. So it's kind of always was, sounds like it was somewhat of a trajectory from, from high school, but like what has led you today to come and talk about automation so automation is, I mean, I, I'm seeing it go everywhere. I mean, every one of your major companies does some type of automation. And at the rate that it's growing, I mean, I've been with Siemens now for only six months. Um, and we're already talking about reducing my territory, adding another person, um, breaking up the country into even smaller sections to make sure we can focus on the growing needs of uh, automation in the world just around us. So, I mean, it's, it's growing at an unprecedented rate. There's so many changes that are happening in the industry. Um, and it's, it, to me, it's really exciting for, and, and I guess a little scary. So it's, it can really, um, be intimidating to a lot of people. And so when you say, when you say automation, like let's maybe define that for the person who I mean, some people might think, you know, automation is just like machine line stuff. Like, is, is that what it is? Or is it like, is there more to this automation thing um, from the, not only just what you deal with, but what you've seen in your perspective? So I deal with 
So what I deal with directly is more on the industrial side. So you're talking um, like a steel factory. How did how is a steel factory producing steel today versus what it did 50 years ago or even 10 years ago, really? Um, how does a manufacturing line fit together? How is a logistics facility, you know, picking and packing boxes to get shipped, you know, your Amazon stuff, that, those types of customers, they're the ones that I'm dealing with on a regular basis. Um, people who make cigarettes, people who do, you know, kind of the behind the scenes, behind the scenes role is what I, is where I fit in. So as, okay. as more and more processes get automated, how is that, like, is a, is a plant, how does, how do the workers that work at that plant interact with that? Are there fewer workers because more stuff is being done by, uh, you know, automatically by machines? Do, 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 do. Or is it something where as they get more productive, they can actually hire more people to do some of the ancillary tasks that can't be automated? Or maybe you don't, I don't know, maybe you don't see that end of it. You just automate it and leave. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, actually, I, I try to pay attention. So a lot of the customers that we have, um, for example, I'll, I'll use a steel plant in uh, Pittsburgh. So, you know, Pittsburgh was built on steel and the steel industry there was huge. And I mean, the city was built around it, right? Um, a steel factory today versus what it was 30 or 40 years ago uses, I mean, the efficiency of of a person they're expecting to be seven at least seven times more than what it was back then so a lot of the, the plants and the facilities and the rollers that that we worked with uh, a rolling machine in pittsburgh today um might have 30 or 40 employees as where you know, years ago it was probably closer to four or five hundred employees so it, it really has increased the efficiency of people and i mean everyone has great intentions when they first install this stuff but when they start realizing how much it affects their business and how less influence they need from a human touch. For the most part, a lot of these places are, are um, replacing people with machines. And is that good in your opinion? Is it, is it leading to better products and better pricing and more functional markets or is it, uh, or are the negative consequences severe enough locally to take seriously? So, so far, in the world that we live in, it hasn't been extremely detrimental, I feel, to the economics and, and you know, everyone that works in the industries. Because for the most part, when a job has been taken away, another one has been created by the technology and by, you know, what's being installed. So instead of, you know, your car manufacturers, everyone was worried about, you know, well, what are we going to do with horses and the, the guys that are making the horseshoes? Well, now instead of them making horseshoes, they're, you know, changing brakes on a car. Um, today... I'm starting to see or I'm, I'm starting to feel like um, a lot less of those jobs are being able to just be transferred into other areas. And there's starting to be a more of a gap in where those workers can go, what they can do. And some of the older medium skilled or higher skilled jobs of the past are being replaced by these automation devices. And um, it, it's leaving a lot of people... I would say frightened. Um, there was a report I was reading um, the other day that now this this number may be high. Um, the next decade, uh, about six and a half million jobs are going to be lost to automation. Now it's that's a report, and we know how great some of these uh, <laughs> investigative reports are. I mean, just look at our last election. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, when you think about it, six and a half million jobs, if that number is even close to being right, I mean, we lost a million jobs to China. So what do you think is going to happen if our country, just the U.S., loses six and a half million jobs? Yeah, that's – it's so I know you uh, – we were reading that article in The Economist talking about uh, when jobs are lost – to automation or or to technology in general generally some new job you know steps in to fill the void however there's often a dislocation between uh physically between where the worker is and where the new job is and also the, i think currently the more severe dislocation is between what the old job required you to be able to do and what the new job requires of you um, and i'm just curious if you have any thoughts on uh, worker retraining or you know how do you take somebody who 
you know, say a, a textile plant in South Carolina that has been automated out of a job. And, you know, they were really good at watching a machine and pressing a button or pulling a lever under certain circumstances, which is exactly what machines are also very, very good at. So how do you take that person and put them in a job that is not just as ripe for automation? Like, Is that possible or do you have to go back and completely retrain them? Well, I mean, there, there's a lot of education that comes in with, you know, I mean, automation is it's a huge, I mean, Siemens offers alone, they offer dozens upon dozens upon dozens of classes just on how to program some of these devices. I mean, I mean, the old days of, I mean, even ladder logic, which even I could muddle through, um, they're now going through scripted text. They're going through, I mean, just you have to be a, a, a decent programmer to really get into that market. So, I mean, I kind of circumvent the problem and became a networking specialist. So I don't <laughs> have to do that type of stuff. So, I mean, but there, there really is, I mean, in, in my experience, and I mean, this is limited, mind you, I, I'm one guy of you know, thousands, but to me, I, I see a lot of people that, that unskilled labor from previous that's being replaced by automation, those guys, I mean, they're, they're losing jobs and they have to relocate to be able to find new jobs that, I mean, without increasing their education, without you know, some type of program to get them to that level, it, that disparity is going to continue to grow in the future. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree with that. I, I don't see the automation trend reversing course anytime in the near future. So, so what do you, what do you see going forward as some of the, you know, the big changes automation might, might bring within, I'm, you know, the foreseeable future. I'm not asking you for like, you know, what does 2100 America look like? But just, you know, in the next <laughs> few years. Hey, if I everything will be automated and we will be in a, in a perfect Mecca bliss. That's, <laughs> and nobody will have to do anything. See, that's exactly what John Maynard Keynes <laughs> thought in the 20s, which, which is one of the things that I think is amazing, is that people, like he was saying, we'll be working 15-hour work weeks because, and frankly, if we only did what we had to in the 20s, he'd be absolutely right. Actually, I think it's like a four-hour work week or something like that. Um, but we found all these other things to do. But in the process, you take somebody from the 1920s and you drop them into today, they're basically useless as an employee. Their mind would be blown. Could you imagine that? I mean, 1920s, most people were still riding horses, weren't they? Or did they have cars? Yeah. They certainly Those had cars. cars. There. Cars were far more so popular in cities. They were Horses were definitely common in the countryside. Yeah. Can you imagine bringing someone from like the countryside and dropping them in the same countryside that we have today with roads and trucks and everything else? I mean... Mine would be blown. So uh, there's an economist I read that he actually thinks that productivity increases have kind of slowed down in the past 70 years were an anomaly. And his argument was if you take, say, a delivery guy in 1670 or so, and, you know, he, he hauls his apples to market with a horse and a cart. Um, you know, he picks them by hand. He puts them in a basket. He gives somebody a basket. They give him the money. He, you know, whatever. It's it's. You know, imagine 400 years ago, give or take. Um, he falls asleep for 200 years and wakes up in 1870. Things would look a little different. There's, you know, metal tacks. The shoe, the shoes on the horse are metal. The, you know, the harnesses are more carefully made, machine made. But generally, everything's still the same. His apples will still go in a basket, on a cart, pulled by a horse to market kind of thing. If he falls asleep and wakes up 70 years after that, 1940... Um, that's in, in this guy's opinion, that's where some of the biggest changes happen. He wakes up, you know, now his market is, uh, looks completely different. Everything is being hauled in trucks. You know, there's skyscrapers instead of wooden buildings, steel and concrete dominate. There's pavement instead of dirt roads. You know, the, the money system is a bit different. It's definitely much more, it hasn't gotten electronic yet, but it's much more, um, hard currency, less hard currency dependent. Um, so and then if, if he falls asleep and wakes up 70 years later, essentially the present day, he wakes up, the buildings pretty much look the same, his, his apples still get the market on a truck, and the market itself hasn't changed that much. He gets paid maybe in electronic dollars, but other than that, like this guy's, what he was trying to say was the difference between, say, 1870 and the late 40s was much starker than 
the 1940s and today. Um, and I'm just well, except now he's 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 picking, you know, thousands of apples, and he's no, he's not picking them. Mexicans <laughs> like, are apple picking is yeah, actually still a very labor intensive process that hasn't changed much. But but I'm saying like but they're, and they're getting shipped all over the country. Like it's like it's no longer just hey I'm serving a a very local market like. Well, that that's a change that would have occurred between 1870 and 1940 with the railroad. So the railroad would started okay. bringing Washington apples to New York City. You're absolutely right, but that's not a change that's occurred in the last 70 years. It's a change that occurred in the 70 years before that. So I'm just I'm just curious, Dave, to hear um, if if you think there's a, a real technological revolution, or is it more incrementalism that it's 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 a, a step along a path, or is it really a, a great leap? So I, I think that um, I think the past probably 30 years has been extremely incremental, but I mean, we're kind of at a, a place that, I mean, today as to where we could be going in the very near future, isn't going to be that incremental anymore because you're starting to put in artificial intelligence into a lot of these machines that can learn, you know, they, they basically can be moved instead of programmed. So let's say a robot. Um, to program a robot now, you can take and swivel the robot, put it in one position, hit record, pick something up, hit record, and record the whole motion of you moving it from one position to another. I mean, that, that's really replacing a lot of the dexterity, the, the um, benefits of a human versus these things because they can um, they can actually detect exactly how much pressure they're putting on the device or on the the whatever thing they're picking up. I mean, it, for some of the projects that we get involved with, just seeing some of these advancements and what people are coming up with and what this technology is enabling people to do. Um, I mean, I, so far, I, I would say it's incremental, but I, I think there's going to be a lot of things that are going to revolutionize how um, your typical products are manufactured. Um, and I think, personally, I think that's a good thing. So there's a lot of reason for it. But it's also something that we have to be willing to accept moving forward in that you know, it's, it's going to change how people live their lives. And we need to be able to figure out how to you know, not make that such a drastic change for people because it, I mean, changing your entire life is going to be a huge thing for a lot of these workers. So how do we alleviate that um, issue in the future? Have you seen examples of uh, companies or organizations that seem to be doing that well? I mean, we are probably at the beginning or early stages of, of some of the most severe changes. You're talking about losing six and a half million jobs in the next 10 years. So are, is there anyone that you're seeing that's doing that well currently? Not precisely, no. Um, I mean, the companies are more focused on their profit. They're more focused on what they're producing. So, I mean, to them, it's it's not really their responsibility to relocate these people. I mean, personally, I think a good company does what they can to train these people, to move them into new jobs. That way they can expand and you know, they're invested in the people that they have. But when we look around the world and we look around in industries, when we look around what corporations do, it, it typically is not that. It's typically hire and fire. And, you know, it, it, to me, I, I don't think that's a good management practice, but there's companies that survive on that. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. It's funny. We see that commercial, the one college commercial, or the guy who he used to make some piece of thing, and and he gets fired, and he goes to school, and he comes back, and now he's the guy that's maintaining the the system <laughs> that used to do his job. And I was like, you know, it's funny, it 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 really doesn't work like that in a lot of cases. <laughs> like, like, it's it's almost an unfair um, an unfair perspective. I mean, it's an advertisement, so they want you to come to their college. But oh, yeah. I mean, I know that even here at PPL. Um, there's a there's a fear with meters that now shut themselves off and turn themselves back on. You know that's forty percent of our work, um, that's gone, and so we are seeing a smaller workforce um, required to do um, a smaller amount of work or a different level of work. And so, mm -hmm. 
there are some in the organization that would like to see, um, look ahead and say, you know, move us as from people just doing kind of like labor or like very like meaning, not menial tasks. I'm not sure how to explain repetitive? it. Repetitive? Like Routine? Yeah, very repetitive. Yeah. And move it into more of a specialty role um, where we're, we're diagnosing RF issues and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's... It, there is a i feel like there's a legitimate fear there and and i think even ppl because their utility has been um been like later on the on this forefront when it comes to automation but they're seeing the benefits now of like oh my gosh like we could we we used to have a person who would go through an excel spreadsheet and would look and see if anybody had used um one like 2 2 to 5 kilowatt hours or more of electric and we know that they had turned themselves back on and now that that system's fully automated like that was like one person's full-time job <laughs> that's an amazing that someone's job was to stare at a spreadsheet it wasn't even like change either interact with the spreadsheet just look at it and see what it says <laughs> well it would it, then you take that and you would they we would have to create a job that would send somebody out um with the notes in it saying you know this is what this is what's going on there so there was a little more to it, but yeah, you're, yeah, it's like, it's amazing. It, it was amazing. I, I kept saying, well, why, I mean, I hate for somebody to lose the job, but we have other work where we're like really shorthanded. Um, why not just make that automated? And it's like, well, we don't have the system capable of doing that. So Joe, Joe in your position, I mean, yeah. I would think that you'd be kind of afraid. I mean, that, that to me is, um, I mean, we do control of, of the New York subway system rails and rail heaters in the winter to make sure that, you know, we're switching rail heaters on and off at certain temperatures. We're changing tracks from one place to the other without any human being on site. Like in your position, are you worried about your job being automated and what's going to happen to that role in the future? I think for... For me, I think there's a reality where it will be a smaller workforce. It's not going to be what it used to be, but there is still the reality that meters are out in the field, and I have to crawl and walk through some some crazy places that no robot or drone would mm -hmm. ever be able to get to. <laughs> um, so there's always going to be a need for some sort of um, personnel on the field. Mm. I mean, I don't know that I even, if I'm honest, I don't know that I would see myself in, in this role, um, like for forever either. Like I would much rather be in, in something, um, a little different, but I see the need for the job, um, existing. And I think where this is my personal opinion, but I think the customers that are able to balance automation with customer service, are going to be the ones that are most successful because um, we've we've seen automation done really poorly, mm -hmm. and you lo you lose the customer in in the process, and people would much rather go to some place where they feel like their business is desired and pay a tiny bit more um, instead of having to deal just get just not just cost savings. That's 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 my that's my personal take on it. Um, People, people want to know that they're cared for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's even true. And um, so, you know, I, I think we were talking earlier about, you know, artificial intelligence beating people at, you know, chess and Go and all the other games. But the one thing that has not been able to be beaten was when a artificial intelligent device, a computer or whatever it is that, you know, whatever name they, they called it, no matter what it was playing against, it could never be the combination of a human with the AI. So working hand in hand, working together, I mean, that's still unbeaten. And no AI by itself has been able to win that game. Hmm. So in the AI-human relationship then where they're, they're partners... Uh, who's the senior partner and who's the junior partner? So I, I heard a little bit ab about the chess match between uh, the AI and the human-assisted AI or AI-assisted human, depending which way you look at it. 
Um, and I, you know, I, I was pretty stunned with that result too, that the little bit of boost that the human can give the AI is enough to make it essentially invincible at this point in time. But my question is, does that mean that the human does what the AI says with maybe a little bit of tweaks or does the AI do what the human says with a little bit of tweaks? I think it's a combination of both because I mean, what is a computer or what is an AI? What, what, what does a computer give you? It gives you answers to questions, right? So you have a question, you go to Google and you type it in, right? So you can get all these different results and all these different things that make you think differently, a little bit more analytically, but it still comes down to what I feel is that the intuition of a human combined with that result-driven um, medium really advances both of them together and, and can achieve results that are unheard of or unimaginable today. Yeah, I guess that's fair. I mean, if the final decision-making isn't in the AI's control, but is in the human's control, then the AI is really, you know, assisting. But on the flip side, uh, they're probably actually, I can imagine a reasonably balanced team um, because the human is feeding questions to the AI and the AI is giving answers that generate new questions. So it's kind of like this feedback loop of sorts. Um, at least that's how I like to imagine it in my probably over-romanticized version of how a human and a computer can work together. But I, I also wonder, uh, does it take special training to work well with an AI or, or some form of automation, whether that be artificial intelligence or, you know, something simpler? Or is that something that somebody who has a good grasp of, say, chess can uh, can sit in the seat with the, you know, the computer and together be unbeatable? Or does it take somebody who knows how to do that well? I think it takes a combination of skill and you know, you're not going to have a chess master sitting down with you know, any computer to be able to get to that point. You're not going to have any Joe Schmo, sorry Joe, sitting down with a computer <laughs> and able to, to win that chess match. I mean, to me, I feel like there takes a level of training, a level of practice, a level of, you know, you know drive. More thought. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can't really just, I mean, if. If I gave you the computer or the devices that I use to do consulting and to do, to walk into a facility and say, hey, this is what you're doing right, this is what you're doing wrong. Personally, I mean, maybe this is me just trying to feel better about myself. I don't think you could do as good. I mean, I don't know your background, but I don't think anyone off the street would be able to do what it is I do. I would, I would tend to agree with you. At least I don't believe I could do what you do nearly as well as you do it, which is why you get paid to do it, and I don't. Um, I mean, you but, have a job that you would blow me out of the water with as well. I mean, that's just what we do. So we build skills to try to advance ourselves. I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> with the right training, I can do anything. But, I mean, isn't that nope. kind of the point? Yeah, I'm really good at learning on the go <laughs> can do anything stuff might get broken in the i would get fired because stuff would get broken in the process but i would learn <laughs> <laughs> do anything but Latin. But, yeah there was a yeah really. there was a an article that came across uh, my facebook feed today that says homer simpson defeats google's all-powerful deep mind artificial intelligence <laughs> and it was like, cause like you're talking about Google's deep mind is like mastered, like all these games, all this, like all this basically like process driven type things, um, where it's all about the matter of how the outcomes come out and, and being able to see all of them all at once kind of thing. Um, but it had trouble, um, understanding, identifying the many common human behaviors that Homer Simpson exhibits, whether it's eating donuts or crisps falling on his face, yawning or drinking beer. <laughs> I just, I just found that so fascinating that we were talking about that today and, and we're gonna, and, and Homer Simpson is the thing that defeated Google. <laughs> well, I think they, they point out something really interesting there, which is the problems that are easy and the problems that are hard, um, especially for um, recognition software specifically, often don't look that different until you start trying to achieve them. So one of my favorite examples is XKCD has this great comic where 
there's some pro- somebody's writing an app or a program it says that'd be great if whenever somebody took a picture in the national parks and posted it on social media like we could scrape that you know we we geotag it and scrape it and post it to the national park social media i was like oh great you know give me 25 minutes that wouldn't be that hard to do or whatever and the next was like and if it has a picture of a bird in it or, or if the picture has a bird in it it should also say check out this cool bird and the guy's like yeah, give me like a million dollar grant and a team in five years and maybe we can do that. Um, <laughs> and I think what he's trying to get at there is that some things seem like difficult problems, like knowing where a person took a picture is actually pretty easy to solve. Uh, and the flip side, things that seem like really easy, like, is that a bird? Which, I mean, any four-year-old is like, bird, and they're right the vast majority of the time. Correct me if I'm wrong, Joe. Um, yeah, mostly, yeah. <laughs> but getting a computer to do that anywhere near reasonably accurately has been uh, a challenge to date. Although uh, from what I, that comic is a few years old, so they might've made a lot of progress since then as well. I think they really made a lot of progress on that and they're really driving to get to that point. I mean, any real major advancement we don't really see right away. So they may already be able to tell you if it's a bird and what type of bird and the colors of the bird and where the bird's from and you know its whole life history uh, you know, but, but i mean it, we may not see that technology and maybe that's what the nsa is using that still wasn't released you know? <laughs> <laughs> we just it hasn't been public consumption yet <laughs> yeah i mean wikileaks hasn't gotten their hand on it so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. give them another week have you guys uh heard of the book the circle yes i have not have you read it yep or Dave, you have? Yeah, I have. And I think you'd find it an interesting combination of what we're talking about today and what we talked about uh, two weeks ago. Is it fiction or media. nonfiction? Uh, fiction. fiction. Okay. They actually, just made a movie yeah. about it, didn't they? Yes, I haven't seen the it, I haven't seen the movie yet. Um, I wanted to. I saw that it was coming out on the movie and said based on the book, and I was like, you know what? I've never been into reading before, but now I am. So I want to like read the book first and then go see the movie and find out why everybody gets all pissed off when they've read a book and then go see a movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> Is this going to be a new experience for you, Joe? <laughs> oh, it's going to be good. First time ever. Brand new experience. So it's not in theaters anymore. So I'm waiting. It comes out in July. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rent it and watch it. And, and well, already in the one commercial, I was like, wait. That guy wasn't doesn't look anything like the character. Like, um, <laughs> but I'm like, I oh, totally totally get it. Yeah, well, totally get like it. In the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings, and then watching the movie, you just you're let down. I wouldn't know. I I <laughs> the movie the movies were great. I agree with Dave. <laughs> although the one caveat I would make is that the movies progress a lot faster than the books do because I don't know how many hundreds of pages they are with like four and a half font or sized font it's just so much reading and the movies you're like all right this is a three and a half hour commitment versus like a three and a half week commitment so yeah. i do like that i'm a slow reader yeah me too i'm a i listen now so so just going back to something earlier that we talked about about um how the the guy in the 20s thought we'd be like a 15 hour work week like i wonder if with this this automation stuff that as it changes like if it will um if it will impact our society in that way where the where there will be less expected of people uh, maybe not a 15 or a four hour work week but maybe a 30 like i've i've heard i've i've read some articles that that point to you know jobs that are not um you know like like working an assembly line jobs where you're thinking you can actually get more done with better quality in a six-hour workday where you take, like, a two-hour lunch um, than if you're trying to work a 40-hour work week. Or um, there's a company that I applied for that um, they don't have set hours or set time zones. Just they need – they just are – you can travel and work in a different time zone each week, and that's fine. And you could work two hours, go surfing, work another two hours, go surfing, work another two hours as long as your work is getting done. Um and it just it makes me wonder if automation will actually enable us to to do that. And then if it does enable that, will we as a society be able to accept that? 
because right now when it comes to people who we consider freeloaders, um, it's, it's, it's a judgment. Whereas, you know, in the potential future, it just could be the norm. So I'm curious of both your thoughts on that. Well, I will say this, um, if I may take the first crack at it, Dave, um, Uh John Maynard Keynes, when he said 15-hour work week, uh, this was after the 40-hour 40 work, 40 work week was essentially brand new. Uh, and before that, the idea, uh, the work week was six days, and you got one day for the weekend, uh, and it was generally considered 12 hours. So 72 hours was basically considered the work week in agrarian American economies, um, in part mm-hmm. because it took that much time to get all that work done. When we had a 98 percent agrarian two percent urban were a country in the first for the first 40 50 years of our nation's history before the first fruits of the industrial revolution started happening um 80 90 hour work weeks were common i mean uh you're very well aware joe the dairy farmer who cannot you know choose not to work on the weekends however and i think there's something like sixty six thousand. actually this was this statistic is already close to 10 years old um, but about the time we were graduating from high school, there were about 66,000 dairy farmers feeding 300 million Americans. Um, and so the number of people who are required to work those long hours is drastically smaller than it once was. So the fact that we've gone, we've already halved our work week in from you know, 150, 200 years ago. So I do believe, and what's filled that gap is a lot of leisure. There is far more culture, far more like leisure time, like uh, national parks didn't exist before Teddy Roosevelt in the early 1900s. And the only reason people had any time, any reason to use a national park was because they had time and same thing for like monuments and all that kind of stuff. And, and all the recreational leisure things we do, like the rails to trails that are in the area, that was those, those railways weren't used for 20 years before they returned to rails to trails. Why? Well, in part because no one wanted to front the money to do it. And part because did people have the time? Did enough people have the time to make it worthwhile? So I would argue that I I think you're right. I mean, if you look at Europe, they're definitely working less than we are. Um, their productivity yeah. numbers are also lower, so it's hard to know exactly where that balances out. But they tend to be higher on the knowledge economy side as well. So I think you're right, but I don't think people will ever, you know, it, it'll never go too low. So that's my answer. Yeah, I mean... I think that shorter weeks are definitely a way to kind of cope with some of the changes that are going to happen. Now, I, I'll be honest, I don't know what I would do with a shorter work week. I mean, I, I continually am doing stuff and you know, my wife will complain that you know, I, he's always on his phone. He's always checking emails. He's making calls. You know, it's, I mean, I'm, when I hang, when we finish tonight, I'm going to be sitting down and doing emails and, you know, working on a design and trying to catch up with some things that I'm behind on. Um, I mean, I, I kind of agree that that would definitely be a way to go. Um, getting people to buy in on that and getting people to, to kind of, you know, kind of take the back seat and not push forward like what I am. I mean, I don't know. I I know I'm not the same person I once was, but I don't think I could ever really go back to not working ridiculous hours. Um, I kind of get some sense, some twisted sense of satisfaction out of it. Um, and I mean, like, look at Germany. So Germany limits the amount of hours that a employee is supposed to be able to work. I mean, there's still people that work over that. They kind of, you know, work around their, what the law really um, dictates. And I mean, Germany, yeah, super efficient country they you know one of the leading uh, countries gdps of i mean just it's amazing what they can accomplish with with the amount of workforce that they have and, and everything else so i mean it's i could see a shorter work week and i think that you know once you get past morons like me that you know take more pride in what they do as opposed to you know raising kids or whatever and maybe that's my problem maybe i just we don't have kids yet so <laughs> I, I don't have that to focus on. that could that could fix it <laughs> <laughs> well but I, I think sorry finish dave i mean it's just just that's i get personal satisfaction out of solving some of these complex issues that are you know i mean 
really some of these issues nobody has ever solved before, at least I don't think they have. And I'm solving something that nobody else has. And that's my personal, you know, it's what I get excitement out of. It's what I really enjoy. And, you know, it, it's a shame if I'm taking people's jobs. And for those, if they listen to this, I, I'm sorry. Um, but I mean, that's, I, I'm driving to make changes. I'm driving to make things better. And in the process, I'm doing everything I can to help those that may be displaced and trying to help, you know, set up funds and help set up, uh, you know, training programs to get people involved in different types of jobs and get people involved in different types of industries, because that's what we're going to have to do in the future, I think. So that's my take on it. And I think, uh, Dave, that you're absolutely right in that your work is valuable not just for the money it produces, but also for the stimulation and, and dare I say, pleasure that you derive from it as well. There's, there's, uh, you get you get some form of enjoyment. It makes your life better, and not just because they cut you a check at the end of it. Although I'm sure that definitely helps. Oh, it does. Uh, and so, uh, I would agree with you that for people whose jobs provide that, there's. Uh, a lot of people, I think somewhere between 60 and 80% of the American workforce would have a different job if they could. Um, and so you're in the lucky minority that, I mean, assuming you like your job, which it sounds like you do. Um, Most days. You're in the lucky minority that actually wants to keep doing what you're doing. And I think that's probably also what makes you as productive and as good at what you do as well. I'm, you know, I, don't, I haven't seen your work directly, but I imagine it's high quality and, uh, and well done because your employer keeps tasking you with more work. Um, and so you're in the lucky minority that does something they enjoy, gets value from it, both monetary and non-monetary. So I, I wonder how the people who don't have that luxury feel about the idea of a shortened work week. I'm sure they would probably be happy. I mean, I know my wife would want it. Um, I mean, it, it's, I don't know, I... It's not something I really thought about entirely. I mean, until you asked a question, until you brought it up, I'm, yeah, we work a lot. So let me play the, let me play the skeptic for a second. I, mean, I do want to kind of move towards, towards a close, but um, for the person who has lost their job, I, I would <laughs> imagine that they are wondering, are we really making things better or are we just making the rich richer? And so I'm curious on your on your perspective on that. <laughs> so I, I spend a lot of time thinking about that, and a lot of time trying to figure out. Um, you know, to me, I think we're making. I think there's a combination. So I think every advancement we make as a society, there's some drawback. There's some. I mean, there, there has to be. I mean, that that's why we argue about it. That's why we have these conversations. I think that yes, the rich are getting richer off of this and, and they're really benefiting on the fact that they don't have to pay someone to come in all the time to do the work. I mean, think if vehicles became self-driving. What is the first industry that would vanish? Long-haul truckers. Long-haul truckers. I mean, right there is how many millions of jobs? and About three million. Yeah, I mean, to me, that is a job that in the very near future is something that is at risk because yeah. there's a lot of money being invested in it. And when that happens, instead of, you know, paying someone, I mean, they make good money. We'll say, what, 80 grand a year doing what they do. You know, if you can replace somebody that you're paying 80 grand a year to do that, that you have to pay for their health insurance, that you have to you know, invest in their retirement and you're investing in that person and their safety that can only drive, you know, 10 or 12 hours a day. And then they're mandated to stop for 10 hours. Yep. I mean, you're going to increase safety because you're going to have a machine that, you know, hopefully it doesn't run like windows and can run for years and years without ever needing a reboot <laughs> or a blue screen of death. But I mean, that's going to be driven by windows. Me. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, to me, that's, so the benefits are, yes, the rich are getting richer off of some of this. Um, there's also other things that I mentioned that, you know, safety is being increased. So, you know, the the train in New York City last year that went through, it stopped, was due to human error. 
it wasn't due to the machine behind it. So the more machines that are taking these roles and, and that are building a redundancy and safety systems and everything else that have a dedicated, I mean, there, there are safety systems all over the place that they have a dedicated fail safe. So if something happens, they turn off, the entire machine shuts down in a certain way that best protects the people around it. You know, in a, in a, you know I'll go back to the steel mill. The, the steel mill, previously, when it was all people, if something happened, I mean, there easily could be fatalities or a third degree burn because you're around, you know, thousands of degrees to melt steel. Now, the entire floor of that steel mill, not a single person is allowed to walk on it. So it's increasing your safety. It's so in that aspect, it's, it's better, it's safer. They're wealthy, they're getting richer. There's people that are losing their jobs, but there's people that are, they're, middle-class people that are benefiting off of it. Um, and to me, that's one of those things that we as a society have to figure out and, and solve that question soon or else we're going to get to a turning point where people don't know what to do. They're going to be, you know, I don't want to say riots and, you know, people overly... Um, willing to fight for it or, or something like that but we at least have to decide and and come up with an educated or some type of thoughtful way of how to alleviate those issues of you know that six and a half million people that are that could potentially lose their job in the future i completely agree with you dave that um we need to figure out a way to make it benefit everybody not necessarily benefit everybody equally just benefit everybody everybody thinks it's an improvement and without that, um, that's I don't I don't want to try and be dramatic here, but when part of society is benefiting and part another part of society feels like it's coming at their cost, that is historically what leads to, shall we say, forced regime change from inside. Um, <laughs> and I think I think you can look at the 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 recent election we went through as actually, I mean, there's some echoes of that. Why were people voting for somebody who? didn't necessarily represent the things they believed because they were willing to take a risk on something different because what they had been doing wasn't really benefiting their lives. Um, so basically, how can we just distribute those benefits in a way that's meaningfully even, but not so, but also not socialistic, basically? That's, that's the tough one. Yeah, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> million dollar question. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Oh, doing it again. So tune in next um, week when we solve this problem. And <laughs> <laughs> we solve all the world's problems. All right. So Dave, um, in like three sentences or less, like sum up, um, sum this all up for us for in, in regards to automation, what we should be thinking about and uh, why it's important. Automation is, in my view, changing the world. And we need to figure out a way to benefit the greater society instead of just benefiting the few that have all the power and control of where it's being implemented at. Yeah. Good, good stuff. Um, we'll put some stuff in the show notes that you sent us, but is there any, like any place that you go, that's kind of your go-to place for if, if you want to learn about automation or, or just if you're curious about the topic. So I have, um, there's a couple of sites I, I typically visit, but for the most part, what I usually do is um, Google Alerts. So whenever certain words come across in, uh, in an article, whatever else, I every morning at five o'clock in the morning, I get the emails that these are the articles from the previous day, and I read through as many of them as I can before I start my day. Um, I mean, there's if you go to manufacturers, if you go to Siemens website, they have things that, you know, they're really promoting it. They're showing some of the really cool things that they can do. Um, I think the, the best sources for someone trying to learn about it, though, are a lot of the, um, what are they called, the, the trade producers who are writing articles about all this stuff, and they're saying the benefits and drawbacks. Um, like, you have the Profibus International or Profibus PI organization. What are they called? Well, PI. If you if you Google Profinet or Profibus, 
um, that organization is always putting together articles on how it's changing and how it's affecting workers and everything else. Um, I mean, just, yeah, I could always send you articles. There's always stuff going on. Um, it's actually kind of amazing how many articles are actually written every day about automation and, and how it's changing the workforce and everything else. All right. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, you gave us some, we're going to put them in the show notes uh, for anybody that's interested. And, uh, if, uh, if this is something that's, that's important to you, like, you know, shoot us an email, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, we'd love to, you know, start some conversations about it. I think, I think automation is, is fascinating. And I mean, just seeing how it's changing even my own work, uh, here has been an interesting, interesting ride. And, um, and I'm really grateful that we got a chance to talk about it. Um, so, Dave, at the end of the Veach podcast, we've been doing this this thing with question. So, um, give give us the best restaurant that you have ever eaten at. Like, we're not we're just we're talking food service, like the whole package. <laughs> oh goodness! Um, I think I don't remember the name of it. But there was a restaurant in um, Dalian, China. So there's a, there's a little peninsula in northern China that, if you look at a map real closely, it's actually the peninsula right next to the Korea Peninsula. Um, it's right on the ocean. It was a I forget the name of it. Oh man! Um, but it was there with a group of guy or a group of people from college, and um, the owner of the company took us out to it, and it was just this big. I mean, it was overly elaborate. It was gold-plated, everything, and the food was phenomenal. Um, but I cannot remember the name of it. It was all seafood. It was actually the first time I ever had sushi. Oh, really? Okay. Nice. That's that's so clearly. I needed to go. I need to travel to go get good food. Like none of our guests have been like, oh hey, there's like this great place in central Pennsylvania. Well, we take it for <laughs> like, granted. I mean, we can eat there all the time, so it's like that one place that sticks out really is memorable, and it's. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. It's totally true. All right. Well, hey, if um, if you like this episode and you found it really interesting, you know, let us know. Um, feel free to subscribe. Leave us a comment on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, share it if you liked it. I mean, that's always a good thing. And uh, we're always looking for for guests and for feedback. And so um, we welcome you uh, to to come and and email us at contact at whyisthatimportant.com. And we'll take that into consideration. Um, well, thanks, Dave. I appreciate you coming on here and allowing us to pick your brain and uh, catch up. And it's been it's been great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Dave.